What up all you beautiful misfits and rejects out there? Thank you for joining me for episode 185 of Misfits and Rejects. Today's episode, I spoke with Freddie Lansky from pointspanda.com. Freddie's story is a cool one because in many ways, Freddie has designed his life in the exact way that I would like to as well, which is basically creating a very viable, healthy online business, allowing himself to move around the world as he pleases. And what he's got himself really good at though, which is what pointspanda.com is about, is travel hacking, you know, learning how to utilize all the point systems through all these different credit card companies and then reaping the benefits of, you know, business class, first class tickets for virtually no money. It's a really cool story. And as we dig deeper into his past, you hear about his first venture, which was online chess instruction for, you know, intermediate to advanced players. And I mean, hearing that story, I think for anybody can give you hope that, you too probably have a unique skill set that you can take online and make money at it. You know, it's not always going to be as successful as Freddie's company, but it's possible. Anything, any skill you have, there is usually some way to take it online and monetize it. Again, it's not easy. A lot of times what you set out to accomplish isn't actually the end result. You have to be creative. You have to think outside of the box. But again, this episode really got me psyched because Freddie's living in Mexico City he has an international airport that he can hop on a flight and just go anywhere he wants around the world. As he talks about, he did for many years and still does, but has decreased that amount of travel in the last few years. And I hope this episode just inspires you as much as it inspired me. And if you're a first time listener, please pull up that phone, hit the subscribe button on whatever you're listening to this on uh, rating this episode. Five stars would make Freddie and I super stoked as well as sharing it with a friend. We would appreciate that as well. And if you'd like to support Misfits and Rejects, you can do that in one of two ways. You can either head over to misfitsandrejects.com backslash shop, pick up a Misfits and Rejects t-shirt, or you can head over to patreon.com backslash misfitsandrejects and give a monthly donation, whatever you want, $1, $5, $10. It's up to you. Nothing is expected. All is appreciated. And I really hope you enjoy this episode with Freddie Lansky from pointspanda.com. Welcome to Misfits and Rejects, a podcast about the lifestyle design of expatriates, travelers, entrepreneurs, and adventurers. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder. Enjoy. I didn't fit in America. With cocaine, there's just always too many guns and too many bad attitudes. I quit the limiting stories. Really try to overcome that fear. And right there, for any of your listeners... A lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact I just went and did it. Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. Today I'm joined by Freddie Lansky from PointsPanda.com. What's up, Freddie? How are you, man? Good, good. How are you? I'm good, dude. You're calling from Mexico City, right? Yeah, I'm just opening up my monitor now, so you're full screen, so I, I don't get distracted by any other shiny objects, just your your pretty face and and you know, the podcast. So, you know, my uh, undivided attention. I love it. Well, thank you. Yeah. For taking the time and joining me because we met at DCBKK this last year in Thailand. I came to your seminar on, um, travel hacking, I guess is kind of the terminology you use, which was super intriguing to me. I'd only read about it once before. And I think Rolling Stone, um, and you gave a very nice talk about it, which gave me a lot of insight into, I guess, the way I would like to travel. <laughs> you know, in my mind, it's like traveling business class is uh, a far-fetched notion considering the price point of it all. But you made it very clear, like if you if you click the right plays and you get the right credit cards going and doing the right moves, you can you can travel for free. 
But you, you travel a lot, right? I, I do travel a lot, and I just, you know, I use fucking kayak or I use uh, Skyscanner or whatever, and I just buy the cheapest ticket and one ways all around the world. So you could get approved for all these credit cards and get the bonuses and do all this stuff, but you just didn't know about it or you didn't know that you could be able to do it or why you just you didn't hear about the kind of travel hacking game or what i heard about it but it just seems so complex and the and the people or the one person that i had read about doing it it seemed like such a load of work trying to like understand the different points and shifting them around the board and like um to be honest I just got overwhelmed and it seemed like i'd be spending a lot more time than I was really interested in spending, which is what was so amazing about hearing your story and then kind of the service you're providing people now, which is, you know, if people want to pay you, I forget the fee you were mentioned when we, when I heard your talk, but um, they can pay you at a flat annual fee and you'll just kind of guide them and help them get flights when they need them. Yeah. So there's two parts of that service. The first one is, helping you sign up for the right credit cards. And if you're spending a lot of money, make sure that you're hitting as many bonus categories as possible to rack up the most amount of points in the least amount of time. And that, that part's relatively easy. A lot of people just do that on their own. The hard part is redeeming those points for reward flights, especially those long distance business class flights is, each of those different types of credit cards, like Chase Cards, American Express, they each have their own programs with, with lots of different transfer partners. And when I say transfer partners, I'm talking about different airlines and their award programs. So I, for a service like mine or any service that does award booking for you, they have to check all the different airlines, see where the space is to get the best deal. And that's what mostly my competitors do for that service is just – you figure out the stuff with the points, et cetera. Then it, when it comes time to book, they charge per booking to, to go through all your different rewards accounts and figure out where you're going to get the best deal. So I do everything. Um, the only thing is, as of right now, I haven't had one sale for that service since mid-February. I, I actually haven't even had one request from my subscribers or, or my members since mid-February as well. So I've kind of put that a little bit on hold. <laughs> given the current situation we're in. But uh, yeah, I thought it was a unique angle uh, because I, I hadn't seen anyone do it that way before. And I just noticed, I kind of started thinking about it. It's like, okay, you have all these award booking service, but that that's great for people that kind of already know what they're doing and they don't want to go through the laborious process of checking Delta and checking United and checking American and checking British Airways and checking Air France and then looking at compared to the various uh, Amex, Chase and City points they have and figuring out where to transfer, et cetera. And they just want someone to handle it for them. But I realized if you if you don't even know what points to get or where to start, et cetera, you need more than that. You actually need someone con like con that you're able to contact and, and get support from along the way telling them what, what credit cards I need to sign up for, where I need to put my spend. And it's a good business model for me as well, because then I get affiliate commissions for the credit cards that sign, they sign up for on top of the yearly fee as well. And another good thing about the services, a, a problem that people that do award bookings have had is there's no guarantee of success, right? Uh, and even worse, you, you might find a good deal 
Um, but then it takes three or four days from the time that you transfer the points in to the airline to the points actually posting. And by that point, that deal might have disappeared and you have to put someone on, on an, an alternative. So it was very it's frustrating for the award bookers to not be able to have success, even though they did all the work. Uh, and then they still have to pay the fee or they fight with the with the customer that, well, you know, we did all the work, but they're like, well, there's a guarantee, right? You didn't find me the award you want with unlimited. You don't have to worry about that. You just get unlimited. And it was pretty easy up until the pandemic hit to handle people's requests. It wasn't like overwhelming. Like if someone signed up for a year of points panda, maybe once every couple of months, they'll hit me up for an award flight. There's a limit on how many award flights someone can book. Cause typically for a normal consumer, you know, one award long distance business classifies going to take out all their points anyways. Interesting. Let's circle back. Cause you said a few things I, I know that my audience doesn't understand. So your, your service is unlimited, meaning like you're willing to do all the research, um, in an unlimited form because that you were saying that, um, you could backfire, like you could not get that ticket because of, um, the, the time it takes for the points to post. Okay. All, all I was saying is for competitors of mine who do award bookings with points, since they charge per booking, there's a chance that they just might not be able to find a suitable flight. Like someone's trying to fly from New York to Paris in the summer, right? Which, which is be incredibly hard to find a reasonably priced, uh, saver award ticket, right? So they might charge a small fee just to look and then a larger fee if they have success with it. There's various models, but the the point is that you might still have to do the work even if you even if you can't find the award they were looking for and then have to give them a partial or full refund because you didn't have success with a an unlimited model you don't have to worry about that right they've already paid up front maybe you have success maybe you don't it it, it feels like it it gives a much more casual um, uh, approach to it so people can contact me hey can you take a look at this real quick and it, if there's a good chance I'll be able to find something, then I can look further into it. So with the unlimited model, that that issue was was resolved, which kind of was a source of friction for both customers um, and for the people offering that service as well. But I, I also wanted to kind of stop you for a minute because even before the pandemic hit, I was already starting to shift my model more towards a traditional travel hacking and credit card affiliate site. And what that means is uh, sites like thepointsguy.com is the biggest uh, player in this game. There's also One Mile at a Time. So they do things like uh, re uh, reviews of business class seats, first class seats, airport lounges, five-star hotels, uh, happenings in the airline industry and loyalty programs, et cetera. Um, and based on that content, they advertise credit cards. And that that's their main shtick is travel credit cards, the Chase cards, American Express, and all the happenings there. And they make all their money uh, from affiliate sales of people signing up for credit cards. So I was moving in that direction. I still am. But since that also took a huge hit right now, um, I moved right now towards more traditional uh, finance products like personal loans, 0% APR credit cards, different types of insurance. I, I'm building a whole funnel right now of various 
uh, personal finance or consumer finance products that people might need to get through the recession. And that's going to be my short term play, but I'm still looking to build content that travel hackers would be interested over the long run. And yeah, I'm keeping the concierge open. I like the idea uh, for once, you know, travel, travel gets back, but I don't foresee myself being able to do any sales on it anytime within the next few months. So, and the other problem I had even before the pandemic was it, I couldn't figure out a way, way to scale it well, cause I had already signed up 50, 60 people and it was more difficult than I expected to find, to hire someone who has the customer service and the knowledge on points to take that over uh, for me. And even from a profitability perspective, whether that was even practical, because I'm only charging, you know, between four and seven hundred dollars uh, for the service. And so if I'm paying someone thirty dollars an hour and they take, you know, 10 hours over a period of a year per client, I'm wondering if I'm even making money if I don't do it on my own. Yeah, no, dude. I mean, you you sound like you're pretty nimble in the way you can adjust just with your knowledge of you know travel hacking and understanding credit cards. And you talking about now helping people with you know the economic crisis we're all in of like just finding like for me for example, I'd love to hear what the best zero percent card is that you just mentioned. You know? Yeah, yeah. That's what, that's what I'm working on right now is coming up with a course. So I was able to pivot quickly because once once this hit, uh, I realized. You know, travel is, is just done right now. Um, even travel credit cards are down 70, 80 percent uh, for the applications. That's that's who my account manager who who supplies the affiliate links and has the relationships with Chase American Express told me. So, yeah, I mean, there's still you can still sign up for a travel credit card and get the points right now. But people are not very interested and it, I, I do think it'll the cards will slowly make a comeback and they'll proceed travel itself by a couple of months because you have to sign up for the card and get the points, et cetera. And a lot of people are going to want to travel after this is all over, but they're going to be really tight on funds. So getting a credit card uh, sign up bonus worth, let's say, $1,000 uh, using $300 of that for a plane ticket and the other $700 for a hotel, like that basically – could just one credit card sign up could pay for that vacation, but that's going to be down the road. Uh, it's that's not where we're at right now. So I, I had already built relationships with all these people in travel finance, supplying me these affiliate offers, and so it wasn't hard for me to pivot and say, "Hey, what's well, what's selling right now?" And they're like, "Oh, well, you know, people are refinancing their mortgages, taking out uh, personal loans, zero percent APR cards, etc." So the banks have been tightening up who gets approved. That's not you know, a su surprising at all. So the the raw amount of numbers uh, has definitely gone down. But are people still signing up for these things? Uh, yeah, it, actually, for things like loans and zero percent APR cards, uh, the amount of people applying is actually up. So you can definitely build a funnel around that. And that's what I'm working on right now is coming up with a Facebook ads funnel, like, you know, the 10 mistakes people are making uh, financial mistakes, uh, learn what they are. And that's going to send them to an email course where I'm going to talk about budgeting, 0% APR cards, different finance options and different types of insurance, life insurance, health insurance, renegotiating all those things. Um, even something as mundane as auto insurance as well. You know, if you're not driving, what's, what's the point of paying for expensive uh, auto insurance? And yeah, these are topics I'm super particularly passionate about. Like I love travel hacking and getting into five-star hotels and 
first class seats while paying basically nothing and and all this little game with the credit cards and the signups and, and in a way I'm, I'm kind of addicted to points I, I feel like this has this kind of gambling element where you're trying to find that long distance business class seat and you're looking at all the partners and it's all like expensive way too expensive way too expensive and then finally you find that one partner that's selling that lay flat business class seat for 50,000 points that all the other partners you were looking at, it was like 150. I, it's kind of got that gambler's rush where you get like a little dopamine hit from finding it. And all that stuff is really fun, but it's just not converting right now. And it's just not, you know, what people need right now. I mean, travel is going to be done for a long time. So in the meantime, uh, I have all these other financial products I'm going to try working on. And the good thing is a lot of travel finance sites already had a personal finance element of, of helping people out and things like that even before all, all this hit. So it's not that unusual to, to kind of spread out and, and pivot a little bit. So that's a good piece of advice for businesses looking to pivot is – Try try to do something that even when this is all over will still make sense for your business. So all the work you did now, you know, will go towards expanding to a new arm of your business rather than just something, you know, very temporary that in in few in a few months or a year won't have value to your business and you'll just shut it down. No, yeah, it's very good advice. And just for a quick little plug to you, it's like so anybody listening who's struggling right now financially, looking to transfer some debt to a zero percent credit card or looking for a loan, like then come to Points Panda. Um, is that where you offer some information on that? Yeah. So by the time this podcast comes out, I should have a email course. Um, I'm still debating whether I'm going to call it, you know, the ten mistakes, pe- financial mistakes people are making during coronavirus, or the ten best tips to get through a recession. It's going to be a 100% free course. Um, it is going to advertise some you know, af- uh, affiliated financial products, but it, other than that, uh, it's 100% free. And yeah, it'll give you lots of tips, lowering your bills, um, how to get interest rates down, how to do things like paying for mortgage payments and other payments that are typically um, you, you can only do by bank accounts, uh, how you can pay those by credit cards, using tricks like uh, paying through PayPal or through another service called, I I'm, I don't know if it's pronounced plastic or plastique. I have to look into it, P-L-A-S-T-I-Q. And one thing they do is you can make a payment uh, with a credit card for a 3% fee, and uh, then they'll send out a personal check or an ACH transfer. So that's one way to be able to pay by by credit card. So you could do something like, say, you're having trouble on a mortgage or student loan payment, something like that, you could get a 0% APR card and then combine that with a service like Plastic or Plastic, I already pronounce it, um, to write write those checks for a mortgage or for um, rents, whatever, and anything else that you typically couldn't pay by credit card and not have to pay interest on that for anywhere from 12 to 18 months. That's one hack. Uh, there, there's a bunch of other hacks, and I'll go over it in the course. And yeah, this isn't like my primary passion for personal finance, but uh, I think it's going to be a nice short-term play right now to educate people and help them out in the meantime. That's what people need right now is help paying their bills. They don't need travel hacking and first-class reviews and things like that. Uh, but what's cool is is this will be an interesting arm of my business to expand and to become 
uh, a little more uh, sturdy, or if you want to use uh, entrepreneur jargon, anti-fragile, <laughs> you know, uh, become have different arms because uh, businesses that were doing a pure travel blog play that 100% travel are really struggling right now to pivot because those those businesses have seen a 70, 80% reduction in uh, revenue over the past six weeks. And so I think by kind of keeping it between travel, travel finance, but also a little bit of personal finance as well, not only am I going to have something in the short term that can help people out, but I can keep expanding that arm of the business as well. But that's my plan right now. Focus a lot on personal finance and helping people, more specifically Americans. That's going to kind of be my, my, my niche. It's, it's too hard to keep up with all the financial products of every single country and, and build the relationships to even get those links. Uh, so I'll be focusing on Americans and different things that they can do to get through these tough times. And once things are all clear, I'm going to start moving back uh, more into travel and travel finance and all that fun stuff is as well. No, that's cool, dude. Sticking on the travel hacking tip, you know, when, you look at your competitors and people who are into the same thing that you are and get the same kind of kicks out of it that you do. Is there like a spectrum of people who are better at it than others? Like, or once you obtain that knowledge of kind of how to move the pieces across the board, are you kind of all in the same level playing field as like who's good and who's not good? I think this is, that would be a good example of the classic 80, 20 rule. What I try, what I try to do with, my customers is I, I, I want them in the case of, so I, I offer two packages. One is the consulting and the other is the concierge. The consulting, uh, as of the time of this podcast is about $700 and the consulting is about double that. I'm sorry, the concierge is about double that. So the main, the main difference with the consulting is I'll tell you which cards to open. You can talk to me on Skype. I'll even do screen shares with you on zoom, whatever you want to, you want to do. But ultimately you have to transfer the points to the airline and you have to go into the airline's award system and learn how to do it yourself. And I'll teach you how to do it, but you do it. And so my goal with that is to show people it's not that, that hard to become at least a, a B minus uh, travel hacker, let's say. And in, once, once you get that good, you'll still catch the deals uh, 70, 80% of the time. There might be a few things that you'll miss, but generally you'll start to, to get a pretty quick gist of um, w where you need to look based on where you're trying to fly and with what airline and, and to what city pairs and things like that, right? So I'll, I'll teach you and I'll show you. And for some people that they might keep the consulting for another year, et cetera, but other people I'm, I'm happy to teach you and learn. And then the concierge was more for high end people that are super, super busy and maybe they're running an eight, nine figure business or a CEO. And for them, every minute is money uh, and they don't want to spend an hour or two booking it. They actually want me to book it. And I had realized after a few months of doing the points panda concierge that I thought the hardest part was going to be the research, um, but I realized it's actually not. The hardest part is booking uh, people's actual tickets is I got to get everyone's information, everyone's passport and everyone's credit card. And it's so easy to make just one little mistake. Um, and then a lot of times you have to call the airlines. A lot of a lot of the best award deals don't show up on their award engine. And 
there's a lot of conspiracy on that they actually might make award engines specifically shitty on purpose just to frustrate people and to not wanting to get the best deals or not even booking awards at all. They're very buggy. They're very slow um, as opposed to their cash engine, which magically works instantly. You just type it in. Boom. You get it. So a lot of times you have to call. And so I, a lot of times I was calling the airline four or five times. Like, And you imagine when I <laughs> – when I started the the consulting concierge, I included that in there uh, for everyone. I'll, I'll actually book the tickets for you. And for some outlier customers, that became miserable really, really fast. I had, you know, in some cases, I had to call the airline and sit on hold seven or eight times for one ticket. And imagine they're paying me $400 for a year of this. <laughs> and I've already spent, you know, five hours on one ticket. I was like, okay. So like, how can I, how can I deliver, how can I lower my price drastically and still deliver the majority of the value? And that's when I decided to split it up between the, the consulting and the, the concierge. So I, the consulting is a really unique angle because not, not only has no one ever done unlimited, but, uh, people are always like not thinking outside the box. They're like, Oh, well, there's so many compliance issues with taking down people's credit cards, et cetera, and so on. And, and no one, no one was like, well, why don't you just, you know, uh, teach them how to do it? Uh, it's not that complicated. Like I would, t- I would tell you to go into your American Express account. Then I would tell you to go into the transfer partners. Then I would show you where Delta is. You would enter your Delta Sky Miles number and link it. Very simple form, whatever. Then that's done. Then I would tell you the amount of miles to transfer and you would do that on a screen share with me. Um, and then I would show you Delta where to click the award button instead of the cash booking, the two city pairs and the dates. And then you would just take it over from there. So it's not like <laughs> it's it's not rocket science. People make it out to be harder than it is. Um, so <laughs> it's really it's really not. And I want to continue to do that and, and educate people, but it's probably not going to be my main focus anymore. It was just a way to you know, have some funding for the long-term part of the business in the, in the beginning. Um, because I knew trading my time for money and just base, I mean, I, I made a few grand just on one Facebook post as an idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I, I made, you know, a few thousand more, actually more than that. Like, I think we did like 20,000 sales for this, uh, private community called the dynamite circle with a bunch of, uh, it's like a thousand entrepreneurs. And I did a deal, uh, through their email list and through the Tropical MBA podcast as well. And so I barely even had a website up uh, by the time it already did like 20 grand in revenue. Um, but the problem is I had to service all those clients for a full year after that. And that was distracting me from setting up the website, from making all these moves and, and uh, you know, SEO and articles and, and YouTube and the co- whole content side of things. So the silver lining of, of this pandemic is since mid February, I, ha- I haven't had one flight request. Uh, one, one person even contact me. I mean, I have someone contact me for credit cards, which I, you know, I kind of understand, I guess it's not people's priority, but I mean, you might as well keep signing up for these cards as long as you're spending enough to hit the minimum spend, even during the pandemic, it's still free money. And so it's going to take a few months from the time you apply for a card for the bonus award to post to your account. And then, you know, a few weeks to a month or two more until you're ready to book another month or two down the line. So might as well. 
I love it, Freddie. Dude, you're a wizard, brother. Uh, one thing that interested me when we met in Thailand is your previous business, which I'd love the audience to hear because I think it's an example of if you have a, a niche skill set, you could monetize it online. And you had a company, I think, with a partner called what iChess, where you taught people how to taught people how to play chess. Is that correct? It was more for intermediate to advanced chess chess geeks, which in the chess world they call them club club players. Uh, that these are people that there aren't they they aren't professional chess players. Uh, they probably have regular jobs and whatnot. Um, but they go to chess tournaments and they, they play competitively and it's, it's a large, it's a larger niche than, than you would expect. So my, my biz, my former business partner who I went to high school and college with, and then, uh, after I got fired from a few, few corporate jobs, he invited me down to Buenos Aires, which just so happens to be where, uh, my mom and a lot of my family are from. So I was like, fuck it. I don't know what to do with my life. I'm going to go down there. And it was there that I started iChess because I saw he was already – he's a, what they call a FIDE chess master, which is they have chess master, international master, and grandmaster. Um, and in grandmaster, there's only a few thousand in the world. Uh, FIDE masters, I think there's maybe like 10,000. Let's just say he's in the top 0.01% of chess players in the world. It's incredibly hard to become a FIDE master. Uh, you have to be really, really into chess and study for years. Uh, and so he had that title and he was already giving classes online, finding clients on Craigslist and things like that. And so I started thinking, Hey, like, uh, I'll, I'll make you a website. And, you know, there's this new platform called YouTube where you can upload videos about anything for free and we'll promote, you know, off there. And I had just gotten out of school. I guess this was 2010. I don't even think the word digital nomad existed <laughs> at that point. I think that didn't even enter the lexicon until a few years later. But um, I had already seen some other entrepreneurs living in Buenos Aires, like Americans, working on Internet businesses and hiring local programmers there. And that kind of got me thinking, hmm, like, you know, this is maybe something I could do. So, yeah, I, I reached out to my uh, former business partner, just a friend at a time. Why don't I make you a website and YouTube channel and we'll promote your chess classes there and you'll be able to charge more money and we'll, we'll, we'll split the money. And so that's what we did. And nothing really happened for a few months. But then we started getting a little bit momentum and we got out of the Google sandbox and the YouTube sandbox. And before you knew it, within, let's say, seven, eight months, we had totally filled his calendar and we got one or two other teachers, but it, that the model wasn't really that good because for my business partner to teach, it was like $30 an hour or $40 an hour. Um, we probably should have been charging a lot more than that. But anyways, that, that's what we were charged, 40 bucks for an hour. Um, it was okay. So it's like, okay, it was making us a few thousand dollars a month to fund other parts of the business. But for other teachers, it's like, well, how much are they going to keep if they're charging 25 or 30 bucks an hour? That's what teachers usually charge for chess. Chess classes are very competitive. Um, it's very like, there's a lot of supply and not always enough demand. And so they want to keep 20. So what are we going to make $5 per class that they teach? There's just no margin. Um, and that's when we started experimenting with actually selling the videos that we were using to promote ourselves. So it was 
uh, chess video on YouTube is a chessboard and a webcam, and they either play live games or they go over famous games or their own games or anything they want to go over uh, with the chessboard and the webcam. And when I say chessboard, I mean like a digital chessboard, basically a, a recording of a chess chess software, chess engine software. And yeah, we were we were kind of the first to the market. They already had videos on VHS and DVD uh, at the time, but that that whole market was dying. Uh, they were getting taken over by downloads and things like that. And so those companies were very discouraged, and they said the market is dead, et cetera. Which I'm sure in their eyes, that's what it felt like, since the um, amount that people were paying, you know, went down drastically. Uh, definitely became more of a commodity. But we managed to grow and grow and sell our own videos. And bit by bit, we start like different companies reached out to us. We reached out to other companies. And a lot of them already had massive collections of chess uh, videos, mostly on DVD. Some of them even on VHS tape, either because they never got converted or the original conversion from VHS to DVD was so poor quality that we had just asked them to send us the original uh, VHS or, or in some cases there were these like I, I guess I call them like studio tapes or something like that. And we were able to get a much higher quality rip. And yeah, some of those videos are still selling because some of them are even from very famous grandmasters that have now passed away. Uh, so like very high quality lectures, even though it's kind of lo-fi. Um, some of them were even uh before digital chess boards, they had like a demonstration board where the pieces were just uh, like uh, just like thin pieces of plastic that would go into these little cubbies that like they just looked like a pres like they were the size of basically a presentation board. Yeah, and they would actually present that way. And so we ended up having thousands and thousands of chess courses uh, on our channel. Hundreds of them were from our own, and thousands were from other companies. And we paid them a commission. We became the biggest. Just the biggest like digital store uh, for for chess courses and yeah it was fun but uh, after it was eight years I did that I was just ready for an exit and I kind of wanted to expand out and do my, my do my own thing and just move on. Uh, also there was limitations on the size of the market we scaled it to a, a little less than one and a half million dollars in revenue per year at its peak. So say about 100k a month, and 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 that, and that was really cool and, and fun, but we couldn't grow it past it. It was just like we we're already top of the market, like that's all the niche could uh, handle. And yeah, I was just ready to move on. So I had an exit for a couple hundred grand uh, early last year. I took a few months off, and then I started Points Panda, and I've been shifting a lot with the Points Panda <laughs> model since then. But yeah, that's the last story of the last uh, me, the last decade. <laughs> it's so cool, dude. I mean, and the whole time you've been operating what in Central and South America, Mexico area. So yeah, I was classic digital nomad for many years. Let's say from twenty. So in twenty eleven, I spent most of my time in Buenos Aires. Then I went back to Atlanta for a year, but it just didn't work out. I, I just wanted to keep living abroad. And then from twenty twelve to. 2016, really more like 2017. I was just all over the place. A few months in Brazil, a few months in Thailand, a few months in Mexico, back to Europe, uh, a few months in the States, just moving around every couple months, bouncing around. But around the time of my 30th birthday, around three and a half years ago, uh, I started getting a little antsy, uh, 
towards just wanting to sign a lease and get a home. And, and at that point, it was it, it started to become less. In my 20s, it was really just like, as long as I'm making a few grand a month and that can support my travels. And I was a classic backpacker, just love backpacking, staying in hostels and exploring and things like that. That's all I care about. But um, as I got older, I, I became more ambitious and taking internet business more seriously and wanting to, to grow it and um, I'll become more successful. It just moving around every couple of months didn't fit into that lifestyle uh, anymore. Plus, it was just getting annoying of going to a new place every few months and like, wow, my God, I'm in Spain. This is awesome. Okay, Spain it is then for three months or four months. And just around the time that I started you know, having like the few girls that I started dating and uh, friends I started making and getting comfortable into a social scene there, I would move again. And so that started to become very taxing as as well. So for the last about, let's see, say about four years, I've had Mexico City as my home base. I still travel uh, a lot. Uh, I'm usually somewhere else about three months a year. Not necessarily consecutively, but just a week here, a week there. Plus every every autumn between October and November, I take like a six and eight week trip through Southeast Asia, which just feels feels like a little bit of a pilgrimage for internet entrepreneurs because there's just such a massive community. Kind of started in Bangkok and Chiang Mai of internet entrepreneurs and freelancers and people working online. And now it's expanded a lot to Saigon, Manila, even Bali as well, uh, in just much larger numbers than you see here in Mexico City. Like there are a lot of people like me here that have internet businesses, but it's nothing compared to the scene in Southeast Asia. So I still try to get out there, but Mexico City is just an easy long-term choice. Uh, it's only a two and a half hour flight from where I grew up in, in Atlanta. It's an hour flight from from Austin, only a few hours from San Diego. Uh, a lot of other cities is very close by 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 plane. Uh, rest of Latin America as well. It's only a few hour flights to Columbia, so it's I, I I like its geographical strategic position uh, within the world because I, I I love visiting Brazil as well, and the airport here is, is just massive. It's just flights come in in and out uh, constantly. Well, barring the the current pandemic uh but uh yeah mexico's a great home play home base great weather and whenever i need to hop back to atlanta for whatever reason or i have a lot of family in florida as well uh it's very easy to do so um so yeah i like it here a lot yeah just real quick with the mexico tip because i know a lot of americans fear mexico based on you know narcos um Mexico City as well, you know, being tied as such a dangerous city. Like, what what's it like there? What's your daily like? I mean, you've been there four years. You must in, have a routine that you really like. You know, it all depends on the neighborhood. Um, you know, there's some, like, there's a lot of wealth concentrated in Mexico City. And there's just a lot of very wealthy neighborhoods as well where, you know, if it weren't for people speaking Spanish, you would think you could be in, in, anywhere else uh, in any uh, developed country. But there's also a lot of bad neighborhoods too, where you know I wouldn't want to want to be there. <laughs> so I, it depends on, on where you're. Like here in Condesa, it's a very like hip neighborhood. Um, it's it's a lot greener than the rest of Mexico City. Uh, Mexico City is all, like just very green in general, but this neighborhood has a lot of parks and things like that. 
and it kind of has uh people have told me uh, compared it a lot to like uh what they call new york east village i think it's what i call call it's like very like uh probably 20 percent maybe even 30 percent of the entire population of condesa which is thirty thousand people are are foreigners uh you know mostly young working professionals in their you know, 20s and 30s that either have internet business, freelancers, some other ways of supporting themselves or potentially working for a Mexican company. And yeah, I mean, here in Condesa, I don't usually, I haven't seen too much. Like every once in a while you hear about, oh, there was some robbery, there was some shooting or, or something, but it, it's very, very uncommon. Like if there was a shooting in Condesa, it would be front page on on the news. Like everyone would be talking about it. So I mean, there is crime, but not to a higher level than what you would get uh, in any city in the U. I, actually, I, I think a lot of the crime rates and murder rates in Atlanta, where I grew up, are actually higher than than in Mexico City. I think in Mexico City you deal with more. I'd be more worried about petty crime, just the stuff you always have to deal with, pickpockets and and scammers and people trying to rip you off and and things like that. But um, I don't usually feel unsafe. You know, I've I felt unsafe and living in Brazil before, and certainly some parts of Mexico. But Mexico City and the resorts, it kind of area or the touristic areas in Mexico, are usually usually pretty safe. I mean, if you if you look at the list of how Americans die in Mexico, like homicide or, or stabbing or violent crime, I don't even think it's in the top 10. It's very much more mundane stuff, usually involving alcohol, uh, like drownings in pools, drowning in the ocean uh, and falling off of balconies uh, and like just even stuff like heart attacks and things like that. Like, I don't I don't really think you should you have to worry about that. Just, you know. Don't look for trouble, uh, and you know trouble won't won't come looking for you. And you know, if uh, some policeman tries to shake you down, just give him the fifty bucks. Uh, don't don't get into a big fight <laughs> uh, over small things. And uh, yeah, I, I've never. I mean, to, okay, just to be fair though, to give background about me. So my mom is from Argentina. I studied Spanish in college, the highest level. Then I moved to Argentina, and I did hundreds of hours more of Spanish classes. So my my Spanish is a very at a very high level. So and I also look Latino, so people don't really mess with me too much. So I don't I don't know your experience would be different based on those aspects. But even then, I mean, there's tons of foreigners that live in Condesa that don't really speak much Spanish. Um, English levels in Mexico City and in Mexico in general are quite a bit higher than the rest of Latin America, which I, I guess has to do with the the influence of you know being next door to the to the U.S. But yeah, I mean it's a beautiful city. Uh, I really recommend people people visit. Uh, well, once once this pandemic is <laughs> is over, what, uh, come, what is come visit. Like? A daily routine like what are your hobbies when you're not you know where i know you're hustling you're working hard but like what kind of stuff are you doing for fun like are you a foodie are you out seeing the sides like what do you do yeah so i mean right now as of the time of the recording uh literally everything is closed just like pretty much every single city on the planet right now um barring a few exceptions um but yeah i mean the restaurant scene here is insane and uh restaurants here are really really cheap at least in in dollar terms uh, i would say 
you know, a, a steak dinner for two with all the trimmings and stuff like that in an Argentine or Brazilian steakhouse wouldn't run you more than $20 a person uh, with tax and tip. And that would include everything. Uh, good cut of steak, sides, uh, every, everything's very, and that, and now with the peso, it went down from 20 to one to 25 to one. So now, uh, things have gotten comically cheap. Like my huge apartment that's about 1100 square feet. Now that the peso is at 25 to one, it's usually like about 12, $1,200 a month. Now it's dropped to under a thousand dollars a month for this massive space in the best, you know, neighborhood in Mexico city. But the food is amazing. Um, to get like a Michelin star tasting course at a top restaurant that would probably run you, I don't know, four or $500 a person in New York city or Miami or LA here, you can get the same experience for maybe a hundred bucks a person. So everything's, um, really cheap. Uh, yeah, I, the food's great. Nightlife's good. I, I don't really party as much as I used to, but I mean, if you want to go out, there's a, a scene for everything, uh, also very cheap. Um, I mean, if you go to like the top nightclub in Polanco, which is like the, I think it's the, the wealthiest neighborhood, not just in Mexico city, but in Mexico period, it's where all like the, you know, uh, designer shops are and the most expensive real estate in, in Mexico. Um, even there to like at a nightclub to get like bottle service and like all the stuff for an entire night split over, you know, three or four guys, rarely it would hit a hundred dollars a person. And that's just like doing whatever you want. Um, so yeah, things are very cheap here. And that's probably the main reason that I live here. Uh, it's just, you know, I save so much money on my cost of living, uh, healthcare, um, just eating out everything. Uh, and yeah, uh, there's for, for a tourist here, uh, there's tons of museums, tons of culture, tons of, of history in Mexico City. So Mexico City was one of the most populous cities in the Americas, uh, even even before the arrival of the Spanish and the Europeans that already had. Uh, I think it was called uh, Tenochtitlan. It's hard hard to pronounce Tenochtitlan. But when by the time Cortes arrived in Mexico City, it already had over a million people. So it has tons of history. Uh, going back thousands of years and tons of stuff to see and ancient ruins and, and food. And I don't know what it is for these uh, Instagram influencers. They always like taking photos. Uh, they call it, what are they called? The facades, the facades of buildings. There's a lot of uh, like art deco and painted, like uh, things are painted. Not art. I think is it art deco. I, I forget the name of, of the style. It was like a popular style between the 1920s and, and 50s uh, with lots of kind of funky, funky colors. And um, people just love taking taking photos of the architecture and things like that as well. Uh, it's become so when I first got here in 2014, very few foreigners. Um, now it's packed every February, March, April. Uh, early May, which is basically this, it's kind of, kind of a weird change of seasons here. Uh, the summer is in, the hottest month is actually March and April. Uh, and it's actually cooler in July because it's raining so much. So, uh, the peak tourist season to typically be right around about now, uh, in April, it just gets packed with, and the type of tourists that come here, they have a tendency to be the more kind of hip, alternative, uh, California style traveler more than like the mass tourism uh you see more in the resorts and things like that but it's it's really taking off 
as a tourist destination. Uh, I think New York Times in 2017 or 2016, they, they, they the, the destination of the year. So now uh, packed with foreigners everywhere. Certainly the advent of things like Uber and Airbnb have made I remember Mexico City before a lot of these apps, uh, you had to know a lot more Spanish and uh, it was a little more complicated. Now it's made it a lot easier to visit as as well. So, yeah, no, it's a great place to live. I, I love living here. And, you know, I, after a couple of years here, I'm not in love with everything about Mexico City, like the air quality and the amount of noise sometimes in the city drives me crazy. But overall, it's it's my city. I already got residency here. I managed to get my taxes down really low with my setup. I don't. I don't think I'm going to take off again. Yeah, the, yeah I was going to ask. So the residency thing, how long did that take you to get? So Mexico is really lax compared to most countries. You get six months upon arrival, and then all you have to do to get another six months is leave and come back on a tourist visa. So essentially, you could live here for years. But the problem is, for tax purposes, there's something called a foreign earned income exclusion, which allows entrepreneurs and people living abroad to not have to pay income tax on their first uh, 105 grand of income. Um, and so there's two ways to qualify for FEIE. You either have to stay out of the States uh, over 30 days a year, or you have to have bona fide, what's called bona fide residence test, where you have to have proof of residency in another country. And the proof of residency thing is a little bit more gray area. Um, even things like a cell phone bill or or just bills to your name are optional, even though they, they help your case. But the one thing that the IRS absolutely demands is residency. You can't have a tourist. You can't be on a tourist visa unless you're willing to stay out of the U.S. 330 days a year, which became a bit problematic after a year or two. I'm like, this sucks. I don't want to deal with this. Um, plus, in Mexico, like eventually, if you have too many stamps in your passport they they had already said like one or they they, they it wasn't like a threat or anything but you could tell like eventually i, I might have an issue getting back into mexico because they're like dude you have like 500 tourist stamps like go just get residency so once i get residency i don't have to worry about that and i don't have to deal with the um the physical presence test for the foreign earned income exclusion which would mean that i have to count how many days uh, I'm in the U.S. a year. Now I can spend as much time there as I want, even though my CPA says try to keep it under under 60 just to, to absolutely be be sure that they'll, they won't say foul foul play. So, yeah, there's there was that. Uh, I got the residency and it wasn't too hard to do. Most of my friends have gotten residency. All you have to do is prove that you have that you're either making a comically low amount of steady income each month. I think it's like fourteen hundred dollars or that you have over $40,000 in the bank. And that's pretty much it. Uh, way easier. I mean, in Argentina or Brazil, uh, unless you have a, a really good legit reason or you're going to invest hundreds of thousands of dollars in the country, getting residency is not that easy. Uh, here in Mexico, yeah, it's super easy. And I think there's over a million Americans that have the Mexican residency. So they don't, they don't want to make it hard on people. Um, you know, retirees coming and living here is a huge uh, part of their economy, American and Canadian retirees, and they don't want to make things too, too difficult on people. So, yeah, things are things are great here now. And now I have the residency. I'm, I'm not I don't want to 
think about having to restart that somewhere else and, and, you know, have to redo my setup. Like, uh, and, and I, you know, like, <laughs> I just don't want to do it. I, I'm, I'm having like that flashbacks of dealing, going to immigration offices and lawyers offices and stuff like that. I feel you did. What a cool life. What was, um, if you don't mind touching upon it real quick, like life, like for you growing up in Atlanta, Atlanta. Okay. That's something people typically haven't asked me in a podcast. Uh, it was cool. Uh, Atlanta went through a lot of change growing up. Uh, like when I was a little kid, uh, six, seven years old, eight years old, Atlanta still wasn't really that major of a city. It was like a regional capital and it was a pretty quiet place. And downtown was just kind of run down, like nothing happening, kind of even, even a bit dangerous kind of a place. Like you didn't venture downtown. It'd probably be equivalent of today of like, I don't know, that downtown, I don't know, like Memphis or something like that. Like it just wasn't, it wasn't a place you wanted to hang out. And then the Olympics came and the city totally transformed and it became, uh, the, the, it just, just the suburb I grew up in, uh, it was kind of the edge of where the city was where I was growing up. Now, uh, it, Atlanta goes out for like another 20 or 30 miles or whatever that is, like 50 kilometers beyond that. It's like a massive urban sprawl. So the city had changed tremendously from when I was like seven, eight years old to when I, I took off to university uh, about you know, 10, 10, 12 years later. It was a big transformation. And your lifestyle, just, you know, like you lived, you said, and just on the outskirts and um, riding bikes yeah. with your friends, playing in the mud. Like yeah. Kind of yeah, I grew up in a very, like a wealthy, you know, upper middle class, uh, suburban Jewish uh, neighborhood. I'm, Jew I'm Jewish and Latin, funny enough. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, quiet, just typical suburban America. Nothing, nothing too crazy. Um, just outside, I mean, say like 10 miles outside of Atlanta. Yeah. And then, but your, and your parents are still there. Or are they back in Argentina or your mom? I know no, so my, my dad, my, my, yeah, my dad's from the U S mom's from Argentina. Uh, and they, no, they, they haven't left Atlanta. They haven't left their home. Uh, my brother still is in Atlanta. All my family does. I, they're all, they're all into, um, residential and commercial real estate and they have, uh, quite a large successful family business. Um, but I just didn't want to go in a real estate direction. So I'm, I'm kind of a black sheep in my family. I'm the only non, uh, real estate person who just went off and kind of did their own thing. Black sheeps, many of the listeners and uh, guests are all black sheeps with their family. So you're, you fit right in brother. <laughs> um, man, thank you so much for your time. This has been awesome. You know, points Panda, I know you're kind of, your model's been changing, but you know, it's travel hacking for anybody, any listening, anybody listening who's interested in that thing, Freddie can obviously help with that. But right now with the economics of the world, it sounds like you can be very helpful with helping people find loans and, you know, 0% credit cards and stuff like that. Is that, is that right? Yeah, that's what I'm focusing on right now, helping people get them the money that they need and uh, helping people save money as as well. So I'm I kind of taken in a temporary personal finance direction. But any anyone that wants to talk to me, uh, you can come to my website and just schedule a 15 minute call. I always get free 15 minute consultations if you want to chat about anything. Uh, feel free. Um, stuck at home <laughs> like everyone else uh, right now, which. A good, it's a good opportunity right now to get people on the phone uh, that usually are harder to get because they're so busy because everyone just has their schedule just so open at home right now. So 
good chance to do that as well. So uh, yeah, anyone that wants to chat, feel free to to contact me. My my website again is pointspanda.com. No, that's good advice, dude. If you could just answer one more question and, and give somebody advice who's listening right now who, you know, might have the interest of starting their first online, you know, enterprise or even just taking that first trip to Mexico City or Mexico in general, what kind of, you know, words of inspiration or motivation could you give them to get started? I'd say just just start. Just come up with an idea and register the domain, register the WordPress blog, etc. and just start writing, just start blogging and trying to build an audience that you can, you can eventually contact them and say, Hey, well, what, 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 what do you need from me? And so your, your fans will, will show you the way, but don't say, I don't know what to sell or I don't know what to do as, as an excuse. That's, that's not the hardest part. <laughs> There's plenty of things to do. The hardest part is, is, you know, getting it to work. Oh, that's great, man. You're the man. Thank you so much for joining us, brother. No worries. Awesome. Freddie. Thank you so much for your time. Again, such an inspiration. Loved hearing your story motivates me tremendously to just keep thinking and trying new things online. Um, as many of you have heard, my first venture, my surf progression techniques didn't work out the way I'd hoped. It is making a little bit of passive income that more or less keeps it alive, you know, annually. But still, you know, the other night I um, made a sale while I was sleeping just because all my systems are automated. And that still feels good, even though technically I'm not making any money on it. It breaks even, like I said, annually. It's still that little bit of like, ah, oh, I did it. Like I actually did set out and accomplish a portion of my goal, which was to create passive income. So that does feel good. That does keep me motivated. And I hope this episode and all the episodes that I will continue to deliver to you motivate you in some way. And you can take some piece of their story and connect with it and hopefully drive you to take that first step out into the world, either traveling or starting that first online venture. So thank you again for listening. I think you all are so very beautiful. Again, if you want to support Misfits and Rejects, you can do that in two ways. You can either head over to misfitsandrejects.com backslash shop, pick up a t-shirt, or head over to patreon.com backslash misfitsandrejects and donate a monthly donation of whatever you want. It's all appreciated. Nothing is expected. I thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next week. Ciao. Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspire you to think about your life situation, where you're at, and possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview inspire you to go out, spread your wings, and try something new, to live a different lifestyle that maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in fact it the perfect one for you and I'll see you next time